are listening to the podcast of Trinity Grace Church Williamsburg. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in Brooklyn. For more information on our church, please visit tgcwilliamsburg.com. the servant of the Lord. The Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses is aid. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them. To the Israelites, I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river of Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to to their ancestors to give to them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always in your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. I have not commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Good morning, church. Thank you, Eric, for taking that away. I thought it was going to be a little weird if I had this one and this one was going on too. Double mic might be a little bit too much. It is so good to see you all in this space today. I am feeling very emotional about it, actually. You look so good. Thank you for being here. I'm really happy to be sharing with you this morning. So we are beginning a brand new uh, series for this new season in the life of our church, and it is called Covered Ground. And during the course of these next five weeks, we want to take some time to reflect on where we've been and to name the ground that we believe God has given us as a church community in this last six or seven years. And so we're going to jump right in because we do actually have a lot of ground to cover today, no pun intended. Um, At various points in the Old Testament narrative, uh, we read of individuals or groups of people making an altar by laying down stones of remembrance at places where they had experienced God in a particularly significant way. Um, Perhaps miraculous provision or a supernatural encounter or a significant lesson that God had taught his people. And these altars were constructed of simple local stones and they acted as a marker, uh, not only for those people as a way of acknowledging the active goodness of God, but also for future generations um, to know God's faithfulness in the past in order to strengthen them in their present circumstances. In Genesis 28, we read of Jacob lying down to sleep with a stone for a pillow, I might add, as you did in those days. And as he slept, God met with him in his dream 
dreaming and spoke to him clearly about his promise to Israel, that the blessing of God given to Abraham and Isaac would also be upon him. And when Jacob woke up, he said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And he took the stone that he had been using as a pillow, and he used it to make an altar of remembrance. He poured oil over it, and he made his own commitments to God right there in that place before he continued with his onward journey. Similarly, after Moses and the people of Israel had experienced victory against the Amalekites, Moses gathered stones and built an altar, calling it Jehovah Nisi, which means the Lord is my banner or the Lord is my miracle. These stones of remembrance never marked the end of a journey. It wasn't about commemorating an arrival at a destination, but about recognizing a pivotal moment. It was a moment to acknowledge the felt closeness of God in one moment, knowing that moments of confusion and disconnectedness may inevitably follow. And we are journeying through a pretty pivotal moment in the life of our church. The way ahead is not currently clear. And it's important for us to recognize the areas in which we have experienced the activity of God in the past to strengthen and support us in the journey ahead, where we may at times experience uncertainty and confusion and doubt. We want to carry with us the good things that God has given us in the past. And we also want to be ready to embrace whatever new thing God desires to do among us. We want to lay down all of our stones of remembrance as an act of worship to God, completely surrendering what has been and inviting God to come and continue his kingdom work among us. Throughout the gospels, Jesus referred to the kingdom being near or the kingdom being here. The kingdom of God is very simply God in action, God on the move, God's presence and activity being felt and acknowledged. And laying down stones of remembrance really is a way of acknowledging the presence of the kingdom of God. And in this teaching series, we will have an opportunity to reflect on the goodness of God in action amongst us and to remember and recount ways that we have experienced the kingdom of God being near and to allow us that to fill us with hope and confidence as we move forwards on our onward journey. And what I want to do today is really twofold. I want to set up this series and give some context for where we're going using this passage. It's really a whole chapter of Joshua, but I just had Eric read the first nine verses. I'm sure you're grateful for that. Um, and I also want to link back to some of the things that Tyler addressed in his final two sermons with us. And then at the end, I'm also going to share a particular area of covered ground that we believe God has given us. So kind of two little mini sermons in one, if you like. Now, I've known that I would be teaching on this for some months, um, but I hadn't started preparing, you know, until very recently. But interestingly, uh, the Monday morning after we said goodbye to the Statons, I was having, you know, a slower morning. I went to one of my favorite coffee shops. I was sitting out in the sun, just having a little bit of time to read and journal. I'm very aware of this kind of fresh wave of sadness that had hit me on the previous day, as I know um, some of you also experienced. And I opened my book of common prayer. It has my lectionary at the back. It's what I go to every day to track which scripture I'm going to read on any given day. And lo and behold, the Old Testament portion was Joshua 1, 1 to 9 what Eric just read. So the very first words I read that morning were, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. 
Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give them. Now, obviously no one has died in our context of church leadership, but we have experienced the loss of a significant leader and entered into a time of significant transition as a result. And the words you and all these people get ready to cross just leapt off the page at me. And I knew that God was really trying to get my attention and draw some parallels between this Old Testament story and our present day leadership transition. This is a season of us getting ready to embrace and receive a new thing that God desires to do amongst us. Before the people of Israel could step into their inheritance, they had to undergo several steps of preparation, and so do we. And I want us to spend a little bit of time unpacking what it looks like to get ready. So first, let's make sure we all know the context for our teaching text from Joshua 1. The people of Israel had escaped their slavery and oppression in Egypt under the leadership of Moses. It was Moses who led the people through the parted waters of the Red Sea. Through Moses, God performed miraculous signs, providing water and manna and quail. I almost always say kale, but it's actually quail um, for them to eat and drink in the wilderness. It was the arms of Moses that were held up in prayer as the people fought against the Malachites. It was Moses who was the one who met with God on their behalf and gave them the law, the Ten Commandments, and told the people how they were to live. It was Moses who cast vision about what was ahead for the people when they would enter this promised land. Moses who kept them encouraged as they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years on a journey that should have taken two. And now their formidable leader is dead. The one everyone thought was going to lead them into the very land God had told them about and equipped them for was gone. And right before the book of Joshua begins, we read this in the final chapter of Deuteronomy. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land. Then the Lord said to Moses, this is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes but you will not cross over into it. And right there, in full view of the promised land, Moses died. The towering figure who casts his shadow across the entire narrative of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy is no more. And after we read about the death of Moses in the last chapter of Deuteronomy, Scripture tells us that no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. No one has ever performed with mighty power and wonder these awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of Israel. Is it any wonder that God, in his charge to Joshua, repeatedly says, be strong and courageous? Do you have any idea how intimidating it would have been to succeed Moses? What a legacy to follow, what shoes to fill. But God is clear, Joshua, you and all these people get ready to cross. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. The first preparation for the people of Israel was their leader, And an important part of us getting ready in this season is getting our hearts ready to embrace a new leader. 
obvious, right? I know, but I don't want to presume that we all know that this is part of this season and skip over it. We've said goodbye to Tyler as our lead pastor. And now we are in a season of readying our hearts to welcome, with Christ-like hospitality, the person who God is preparing to take on that role. Joshua was not Moses. And our next lead pastor will not be a carbon copy of Tyler Staten. God ordained it that someone new would lead the Israelites into the promised land. And God is bringing us someone who can pick up where Tyler left off and lead us into what God has for us next. Moses was an incredible prophet and man of God, but he also wasn't perfect. He was another very flawed person that God used for his kingdom purposes. Moses was an Israelite who avoided slavery and oppression because he grew up in the privilege of Pharaoh's palace under the care and protection of Pharaoh's daughter. He killed an Egyptian and made a run for it. During this time of leading the people, Moses also didn't really know how to share the spiritual responsibility of the people beyond himself. And even though he led them for such a long time, he wasn't able to wean them off of their complete dependence upon him. When his father-in-law Jethro arrived and saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, dude, this is not good. Why are you alone the judge of all of these people? You're going to burn out. This work is too heavy for one person alone. And he gives him some timely wise advice about empowering other trusted leaders to share the load. But even after taking this advice, Moses continued to struggle to share the load of responsibility, and it did take its toll on him. In fact, that was ultimately the reason he didn't enter the promised land. You see, one day, after more complaining and more quarreling from the people in their need for more water, Moses is exasperated and angry. He'd had enough. I mean, as a, as a parent of two young girls under five with a lot of emotions, I, I kind of get it. Um, but in his exasperation, he didn't do what God asked him to do. God told Moses to speak to the rock and water would be poured out. But in his exasperation, Moses doesn't speak to the rock. He strikes the rock twice with his staff. And this is the reason why God decided that Moses would not enter the promised land. God tells Moses, because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Carlos, is, am I, is my mic okay? Do you need me to do anything? Okay, just push through. Are you, everybody, everybody okay? All right. Um, and I've just been thinking, what a blow it must have been for Moses. Can you imagine after all of this time, 40 years of leading them and all their quarreling and complaining and disobedience, after all he'd seen and experienced, to not even step foot into that promised land? Moses was an imperfect leader, but he was a beloved leader. And we cannot underestimate the felt experience of his absence for the people. No doubt they had processing and grieving to do. No doubt they felt afraid and uncertain. We read in Deuteronomy that they grieved for Moses on the plains of Moab for 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. They grieved and they readied their hearts for the next chapter. They readied their hearts to receive a new leader with open arms and a warm and enthusiastic welcome. So much so that at the end of the first chapter of Joshua, we, which we didn't read, we read about the people's response to their new leader. This is what it says. They say to Joshua, whatever you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. 
Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Friends, we don't know yet who is going to lead us next, but that doesn't mean that we can't already be interceding on their behalf, praying that same prayer. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with those who have gone before you, praying that God would even now be preparing his or her heart, filling them with wisdom and insight, filling he or she with prophetic vision, preparing the heart and mind and body for the next lead pastor to lead us with integrity and Christ-like. And I believe that as we pray for that person, the Holy Spirit will be readying the soil of our hearts to receive them with grace and love and affection and trust. The people of Israel were able to respond to Joshua's first address to them with unity by saying, it's okay, Joshua, we're with you. Be strong and courageous, Joshua. We believe in you to lead us. Now, obviously, the people of Israel knew Joshua. He was Moses' aide, right? We read that in the first verse. He'd been around for a long time. He'd been on scouting missions into the promised land. He'd led the people into battle. And we may or may not know the person who will lead us next. But if we are willing to open our hearts, the Holy Spirit will do the supernatural work of knitting our hearts together, even now, so that when the time comes, we will be able to receive one another with welcome. If we can be praying for our next lead pastor and asking God to speak to us on their behalf, we will become, like the Israelites were to Joshua, a source of encouragement. We can say, like the Israelites, be strong and courageous. God has ordained that you lead us into what he has for us next. We're with you. The next part of getting ready that I want to address is the importance of remembering the story that God is writing. The promised land that the people were about to enter wasn't dreamed up by Moses. It was the fulfillment of the covenant God had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of these people were characters in the same story, links in the same chain, but all of it was dreamed up in the heart of God himself. There is a story that God has been writing for this community long before any of us participated in it. A story that will go on, he will go on writing long after we're all gone. And as I've been reflecting on this, I've been thinking about the words that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. He was addressing this quarreling that was going on among them about whether each person considered themselves to be a follower of Paul or a follower of Apollos. And he says this to them, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each his task, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor, for we are co-workers in God's service. In the first verse of Joshua 1, Moses is referred to also as the servant of the Lord. This title is actually used for him 17 times throughout the book of Joshua. What is Moses? A servant. What is Tyler? What am I? What is Patrick? What is Carlos? Only servants. One does a little planting, one does a little watering, but who makes it grow? I'm actually asking you. (laughs) Right. It's God's story. And part of the work of getting ready in this season is reminding ourselves of that and continually humbling ourselves. God is in control and God is for us. The death of Moses, their beloved leader, was not, was not going to cripple the nation. 
God is faithful throughout every age and every season of life. His fidelity does not hinge on the leadership of men and women, my friends, no matter how gifted they are, nor does it fizzle out with their departure. If you look at this slide, I think there's, you may see this. If not, I'll just keep talking. There are, there are many um, occasions in Joshua where we see God giving Joshua exactly the same um, command or advice or promise as he gave to Moses elsewhere. And with such careful repetitions, God's making it clear that he is committed to keeping his promises. Was Joshua equipped and ready to step into the shoes of Moses? Humanly speaking, probably not, but God promises to be with Joshua in the same way as he was with Moses. What a promise. God is faithful to whatever generation he is in relationship with. Jesus told his disciples, surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. God's presence is not just promised to particular generations, but to every generation of faithful believers. And that, my friends, includes us. The third point I want to make is that the season of getting ready is also about us in light of God's faithfulness, making a recommitment to walk in obedience to the word of God. The one thing God commanded Joshua to do in preparation for this new season was to be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. God's instructions to Joshua were not related to military matters, which is striking given the number of battles that they were about to face. Their success was intrinsically linked to their spiritual resoluteness. In fact, you may have noticed the continual repetition of these words, be strong and courageous. And in verse 7, where God speaks about the, obeying the law, he talks about being very courageous. And a more clear translation here of the word would actually be the word resolute. It's saying, be determined, be unwavering in your pursuit of me. Keep my word forever on your lips. Meditate on it day and night. This is how you will step in and occupy the land that I have given you. And the same invitation goes to us. Put a stake in the ground and say, at all costs, I will build my life on Jesus. I will put my hope and my trust in him. Whatever he calls me to do, I will do. I will walk in obedience to his commands because in doing so, I find life and life in abundance. The importance of obedience to the law as the key to Joshua's success cannot be overestimated. And the call to us is the same. Live what I've taught you and teach future generations to do the same. And for us in, in this church, you know, summer is often when programming begins to kind of wind down a little bit. There's more time and space for rest. And Lord knows we all probably need a little extra dose of rest and recovery this year. But this is not a time of resting from God. This is a time of resting in God, resting in his promises, dreaming with God about what he has next for us, listening for his word to us as a community. In Tyler's um, penultimate sermon, he drew our attention to that question that Jesus asked more than once in the Gospels, what do you want me to do for you? And he encouraged us as Oaks Church Brooklyn to reflect on this question. When Jesus asked blind Bartimaeus that question, Bartimaeus asked for his sight. He asked for the miraculous. He asked for God to do what only God could do. And I don't know about you, but I am not a bit interested in all the things we could do in our own strength. I have zero interest in running a well-oiled machine. I desperately want the presence of God. I want God to do amongst us what only God can do. 
Interestingly, if you were to open your Bible to that passage of Scripture in Mark 10, particularly if you have the red lettering for the words of Jesus, you'll notice that in the very same chapter, in just the preceding section, Jesus says that same question, what do you want me to do for you? And on that occasion, he says it to James and John when they ask Jesus a favor. They're like, hey, Jesus, will you do something for us? And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And they ask for honor. They ask, let us sit at your right hand in glory. Let us be seen. Let us be known. Let us be admired. And Jesus responds, you don't know what you're asking. And after that sermon from Tyler, I was sitting with that question. I felt like God was drawing my attention to these two sections. One where Jesus responds in answer to what's asked for and one where he doesn't. One where someone asks for honor and one where someone asks for sight. And I felt reminded of that story in 2 Chronicles 1 after famous King David has died and his son Solomon has succeeded him as king. And God appears to him and says, Solomon, ask for whatever you want me to give you, a.k.a what do you want me to do for you? And of all the things Solomon could have asked for, knowing that it would be granted, what does he ask for? He asks for wisdom and knowledge. He too wants to see. And God replies, since this is your heart's desire and you have not asked for wealth, possessions, or honor, nor for the death of your enemies, and since you've not asked for a long life, but for wisdom and knowledge to govern my people whom, um, over whom I have made you king, Therefore, wisdom and knowledge will be given you, and I will also give you wealth, possessions, and honor, such as no king who was before you ever had, and none after you will have. Doesn't this remind you a little bit of the invitation where Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, and everything else will be given to you as well? God delights in us putting him above all else and seeking him first and going after the things that please him rather than the things of the flesh. Making a recommitment to following the ways of Jesus makes making a recommitment to seeking first God's kingdom at all costs. Proverbs 4:11 says this, I will teach you wisdom's ways and lead you in straight paths. When you walk, you won't be held back. When you run, you won't stumble. Take hold of my instructions. Don't let them go. Guard them, for they are the key to life. And as Jesus asks us this question, Oaks Church, Brooklyn, what do you want me to do for you? I hope our response, like Bartimaeus and Solomon, is, Lord, we want to see. Give us wisdom. Teach us wisdom's ways that we might take hold of your teaching and run with all our strength into what you have for us. The final thing I want to say about readying ourselves for this next season is that it's time to get our provisions ready to take hold of new ground. Joshua tells the officers to go through the camp and tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your own. Essentially, they're saying, hey, whatever you need for this journey, your people, your cattle, your food supplies, get them ready. We're about to get moving. And like the Israelites, this is a season for us to individually and collectively reflect on what we're bringing with us and what we're also leaving behind. Anytime you're traveling or packing up an apartment, as we've all done, probably more than once, we're thinking, what am I going to need where I'm going? What can I live without? What has served me? What has overcomplicated my life? And as individuals, I would urge you to give prayerful thought and reflection to resources and gifts and behaviors 
that you want to bring forward into this next season, ones that will edify and build up this body, this family in the new chapter that we're entering. And collectively, this series is about us reflecting on what ground God has given us, building our own personal stones of remembrance. And it's also about us recognizing the provisions God has given us. What gifts are we carrying forward to build upon in this next season? And for the remainder of our time, I want to talk briefly about one of those areas. So over the next few weeks, all of the topics that we will be talking about are areas in which we have gone on a particular journey as a church. In other words, how they look or operate now is very different from when we first began our journey together. But like the stones of remembrance, they don't mark a destination, right? Talking about them is a way for us to acknowledge how far we've come, but also to acknowledge the ongoing journey. We have not arrived but we have taken ground and we are taking a moment to acknowledge that. So for what I wanna talk about today, let's start with a couple of verses from Galatians 3. It says this, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female for you are all one, in Christ Jesus. And this morning, I want to talk about the value that we place in men and women serving together equally in all areas of leadership within our church community. And everything I share today is based on our belief in the authority and inerrancy of scripture and what we believe to be taught across the entire biblical arc. We believe that men and women are created equal in the image of God. Genesis 1 and 2 shows us a world where men and women were created to work together as distinct but equal, complementing one another in submission and obedience to God. And as such, there is beauty and goodness uniquely represented in each gender that profoundly reflects and glorifies God. Men and women are to live together in an interdependent community. They are not the same. They reflect God's image in distinct ways, but neither is meant to operate independently of the other. And we believe that the church is meant to be a preview community. In other words, giving glimpses of God's promised future to the world here and now. A future where, as we read in the book of Joel, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. We believe that the Holy Spirit equally distributes spiritual gifts to both men and women. And as such, that leadership in the church is based on grace, calling, spiritual gifts, obedience, and character. And as a result, it is our belief that both men and women can and should lead, preach, pastor, and minister within the church, and that in fact, women and men doing this together creates a more robust ministry of love and grace, reflecting the mothering and fathering heart of God that one gender alone can't sustain. The redemptive movement towards empowering women took a massive leap forward in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus called 12 male disciples representing 12 tribes of Israel. But in addition to the 12, Jesus included women in his inner circle, both privately and publicly, in ways that were highly countercultural for first century Israel. Jesus was radically ahead of his surrounding society when it came to empowering women. 
The New Testament contains plenty of evidence that this countercultural empowerment of women in leadership was carried forward into the early church. Female prophets are named in Corinth and Caesarea. Paul lists character qualities for female deacons in two separate letters, indicating that women commonly held this office. Priscilla and Aquila held a prominent teaching role in the early church, and many scholars actually believe that Priscilla's teaching ministry was more prominent than her husband's. Now, it also goes without saying that there are a number of really challenging passages of Scripture in the New Testament related to women and the relationship between men and women. And although I don't have time to get into the nitty-gritty of those passages today, if you would like to dig a little deeper into those passages, you're really welcome to reach out to me. I will share a document with you that outlines the cultural context and our reading of all of those texts. Alternatively, you can also just sit down and have a cup of coffee with me or one of the other pastoral team. But I wanna say right from the outset that there are many biblical scholars that I personally admire and respect who equally uphold an authoritative and fallible view of scripture and fall on the opposite side of this doctrine believing that although women may undertake certain roles within the church, they may not step into the role of teaching or eldership. And the very fact of that alone should keep us all humble, right? Because this kind of topic always has to be broached with humility and grace because biblical interpretation is not always easy. And this particular area of interpretation is complex. This issue, like other non-essential theological doctrines, has historically been very divisive in the church. But it is our conviction that, as St. Augustine said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in everything, love. And by essentials, I mean doctrines that are related to the authority of Scripture, God as Trinity, and salvation through Jesus. Now, all of our stance on this doctrine may not at all surprise you given the fact that you're currently listening to a woman teaching at the front, but it may surprise you to know that six or seven years ago when I first expressed a desire to share something with the church that I believe God had spoken to me about, I was told that I could only share it if I had my husband, John, standing next to me so that it was clear to the congregation that I was only speaking under the authority of men. And I say that not to shame anyone from that time in our community's history, but simply to highlight the journey that we've been on with this. Four years ago, um, we were starting to put structures in place for our church governance. Um, Lindsay mentioned it earlier, um, our elder board and also deacons. And our members at that time nominated people to embark on a discernment process regarding eldership. And I was nominated to begin that process back with Luke. And throughout that time, I was honestly pretty unsure as to whether I would step into the role of eldership, not because I didn't believe that women could or should do it, but simply because I just didn't know if I wanted to step into that level of commitment at that time. But over the course of time, I felt increasingly like God was affirming me in this role. And yet there were others from our community who strongly disagreed with my presence on that elder discernment process and threatened to leave the church if I was elected as an elder. And again, I don't say this to shame anyone, but to illustrate the journey that we've been on as a church. When I was invited um, by Tyler to join staff as our pastor, it was made clear to me by him that I was being empowered not to pastor women only, but was being given authority to pastor and teach both men and women. 
And again, there were some who felt happy with me to be in a pastoral or administrative role, but felt deeply uncomfortable with the idea of women teaching, and as a result, no longer attend our church community. And I also fully recognize that you may be sitting here listening to me and not fully sold on the idea that I should be doing what I'm doing. And there are members of my own family who may even be in alignment with you. But honestly, the purpose of today is not to convince you of anything. I'd love to simply open up grace-filled places of dialogue within our body where we're willing to be honest and confront our areas of difference. In non-essentials, we enter into conversation, listening, learning, being humble, and forging a way together, even in the midst of disagreement. I do want to be clear, however, that there is not a single bone in my body that believes I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Thank you for that encouragement. I appreciate it. Um, but I am completely and utterly convinced that God has called me to this role and that doing it is an act of obedience and faithfulness to him alone. I grew up in a church where I often had female pastors. Um, when I was seven years old, we were visited by the, um, the leader of our global movement that our church was a part, and she was a female. And as a young woman, a young girl, I felt empowered to do anything and everything in the church. From a young age, I felt a strong sense of call towards ministry, although the unfolding of that would take several decades. And I devoured scripture. I took so much delight and confidence knowing that Jesus had entrusted the glorious news of his resurrection to a woman, that of all the people he could have picked to be the first messenger of his good news, he chose Mary. And I simply wanted to continue what she, under the authority of Jesus, had started. It was only when I went to a different church when I was at college that I quickly noticed, hey, why are the women just doing prayer and kids? Um, and again, during that time, and indeed for the rest of my life until now, God has always put incredible women of God in my path, women I could learn from, women who could inspire me and continue um, to just like champion me and leaning into everything I felt called to. And I felt called to leadership in this church long before I stepped into the role I am in now. And if I'm really honest, um, because of this issue specifically, we actually wondered over the years if we would stay in this community. Um, so strong was my sense of conviction about vocational ministry that we find ourselves asking, can we stay in a community where there seems to be a cap on how much I can serve? Can we stay where it doesn't seem like I'm going to be able to step into the ways of ministering that I believe God has invited me into? But gradually, things began to shift. And now for someone walking into our church for the first time, unaware of any of this history, they would see a majority female elder team, a majority female staff, and a female teaching pastor. This is what we are talking about when we say covered ground. Our commitment to having men and women ministering equally side by side has been a really important journey. But we are also equally determined to develop leaders across racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic lines, and we have an ongoing journey to do there. We've come a long way, and we've still got a long way to go to reflect the beauty and diversity of God's restorative justice. But we are determined to be a church with integrity and diversity in all areas of leadership, because there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. 
I want to create lots of space for us to respond and for God to minister to us today. So I'm going to invite you to stand. Um, maybe if the band, um, Miriam and John, you could come back up. We talked a lot at the beginning about these stones of remembrance, um, altars of worship commemorating the presence and activity of God. And today, as we've talked about the ground we've covered related to equality and diversity, particularly amongst men and women, we are laying down a stone of remembrance. We're saying, God, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you're doing. And would you lead us into the more that you have for us? Would you take us further into being a church, the kind of church that shows the world a glimpse of what your coming kingdom will be like? But I want to kind of close this section by just speaking some words over you. So I just want to invite you, just close your eyes, maybe even just stretch out your hands in a posture of receiving, if that feels like a comfortable posture for you. These are words of commissioning from 1 Peter 2. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You, all of you, male, female, black, brown, white, young, old, rich, broke, Ivy League, graduated high school dropout, you are all like living stones being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come. We know that you're already here in the room. But we just ask you right now, would you just dial up your presence so that we can all just really feel and experience you drawing close to us? Come, Holy Spirit, make us one. Make us a holy priesthood. And just notice, notice in yourself what's come up for you today. Notice where you felt a sense of resonance or energy and excitement. Notice where you felt resistant. And just even now, I just offer that to God. Just tell him. He already knows, but just tell him what is going on within you. Come, Holy Spirit, and speak to us. I'm going to invite the prayer ministry team to come up. Um, and if you're new to our community, and obviously, you know, we're new to doing prayer ministry again in this space, just know that anyone who's standing at the front here wearing a lanyard um, is someone who's been trained to pray with others. And they would love to receive you if there's anything that you want prayer for today. And you're also welcome to come and kneel. These rugs are here, particularly they are a place of humility and repentance and healing and grace. And if that feels like an appropriate posture for you this morning, I want to encourage you to do that. And we're going to worship. We're going to continue to listen and respond. 
And I just invite you to just be bold, be courageous as you feel the Lord inviting you to respond. And I said earlier that I don't have any deep wounds related to my church upbringing as a female, but I know that that's the exception, actually. And I have a sense that there are probably women in this room and minorities in this room who have not felt like they've had a voice, who have not felt empowered to be all that God is calling you. And I believe today that the Holy Spirit wants to bring freedom and healing and release, even here, even now, even in this room. So actually, we're just, can I just ask you to close your eyes again? Just hold out your hands and a posture of receiving. Because I believe that the Holy Spirit really wants to speak to some of you very directly and very specifically. I believe that God wants to pour out spiritual gifts today. And even now, I think the Holy Spirit is, is fanning into flames gifts that have laid dormant in some of you. And so in the name of Jesus, we just speak to those gifts that have laid dormant. We speak to the gifts that have been silenced. And we just say, wake up. Wake up, come to life. Holy Spirit, fan into flame the gifts of God that you have placed in your sons and daughters. Gifts to build up the church, to bring kingdom activity to Brooklyn, to glorify the name of Jesus in this place. Come, Holy Spirit. And I think some of you even now, sense that the Holy Spirit is ministering to you, um, maybe through tears, uh, maybe through a sense of heat or a thumping heart or even like a tremoring or a shaking. That's all very normal when the Holy Spirit is moving. It's also very normal to feel absolutely nothing and yet to feel a sense that you're supposed to respond. And so I'm just going to ask you, if you're in the room and you just feel that, would you just come to the front now? because we have people who want to pray for you and bless you and speak freedom and release over you. Lord, we want all that you have for us. We want to be all that you're calling us to be. Come, Lord.